Welcome to, or welcome back to the Flowcast. This is the podcast for information and inspiration on your journey to finding your flow. My name's RJ, and I'm joined by my co-host, Telsey, and together we explore topics surrounding flow, as well as lead by example through our own passions and those of the guests that we interview. So let's dive right in. Hey everyone. Just before we get into this episode, one thing that Tony wanted to mention was that the 2020 vision course, which is available at flowacademy.ca slash store, was one of the big reasons that he actually set the goal for himself to attend a silent meditation retreat this year. So we finally have you on the the show so welcome tony to the podcast thank you (laughs) usually you're on the you're usually on the the receiving end but today you get to share your story yes it's very exciting so the 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 topic and kind of the the central theme what we're going over today is is you made mention you know you just finished up this meditation retreat so I kind of want to go through the story of what led you to wanting to do that a bit of the backstory and then it would be interesting to learn more about this meditation retreat that you took part in that was I suppose mostly virtual but there was a lot of you know your efforts put into it in person definitely well I think it is important to um, anybody that shows up at a at a silence insight meditation retreat. I'm sure they all have a good story about how they got there. It seems like it. I did a little bit of research on some of that just to kind of compare the different, I don't know, the different people that I've heard about going on these meditation retreats. So we'll see where we get there. But yeah, you know, this was, uh, I guess, just what was the what was this retreat? And then we'll kind of get into the backstory of what led you to doing it. So the retreat was for the Dharma Center. So they're located in Kinmount. And one of their instructors, Jack Connolly, he's an acupuncturist here in town. So he led the retreat. And I've met Jack, I've gone to him for acupuncture. And uh, prior to the retreat, I've attended some of his um, in-person meditations and just kind of dabbling in them and you know they were really good but they're different from what i've been used to historically where you really just sit in a chair and you're you're alone with your own thoughts and uh that was significantly different from my style of mindfulness leading up to it so yeah it was a bit different so you know, kind of going into the the backstory, and we've we've known each other for uh, fifteen months or so. We talked online prior to that, but you were one of the first customers in at Flow Spa, and we got to know each other really well through that. And uh, now we're bi- biking partners too. <laughs> and so, you know, you've had a a long journey to your sort of groundedness and mindfulness practice and everything. And um, maybe we can kind of bounce back to it if it kind of comes more naturally then, but what does mindfulness mean to you? We can either kind of get into it now or we can get into it after talking about more of the meditation retreat. Yeah, well, I can. what I can say is what mindfulness has meant to me until, um, geez, when did I do the retreat? nine days ago, eight days ago, when I started, I mean, it it shifted significantly since then. So it's pretty amazing shift. But historically, um, I would say, you know, my, my personal mindfulness journey um, would have started about 20 years ago, when I first started going to hot yoga classes. And I was fortunate because my sister is a yoga instructor. So that was pretty early for a for a guy to be heading off to yoga classes. There weren't a lot of guys in class at that time. It's For changed sure. too over 20 years. But I had my sister, so I kind of went with her and to Toronto. And um, 
it was really my first introduction to, you know, moving my body and at the same time incorporating some kind of mindfulness, right? So at the end of the class, lying down and just kind of being with myself. And what I noticed back then was just a real significant shift in my mental state from when I went into the class to when I came out of the class. So that was really my introduction. And then about the same time, that's when I started mountain biking. Yeah. And as you know, mountain biking can be pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> and what I started to do there was kind of a lot of visualizations at that point. And honestly, I can't remember how I came about this stuff, you know, in the early internet days, if I had a book, I really don't remember, but I do recall trying to incorporate tricks, especially when you've been out for a few hours and you're getting really tired and you're just looking for something, something to mentally keep yourself going. And there was one book that I had, a mountain biking book, and just one simple visualization was, just picture there's a rope in your mouth and that rope is attached to a tree at the top of the hill and you're just getting pulled up the hill. <laughs> right? um, and it worked. It works yeah. very well. It, it takes your awareness and it shifts it from the pain of what you're feeling. And then other things too, like I would shift my awareness from my, my right quad for two or three pedal strokes to my left quad, right, left. Kind of just shifting my awareness around. Yeah. So that's kind of where, you know, kind of built upon the relaxation part from yoga and into more of an intense type of activity and recognizing the power of your mind. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then I would say that it kind of progressed into my tennis game. So tennis is my longest sport. I've been playing that since, ooh, 30 years. Okay. So, yeah. And in my tennis game, playing at a, at a level at the, at the Oshawa and the Whitby Tennis Club at the time, um, I would enter into tournaments and I would win the tournaments and I would enter into singles ladders and win the singles ladder. And, you know, I was, I was doing quite well, but I was just really interested, becoming more and more interested in the mental side of the game. Mm. So that's when I went to a sports psychologist in Coburg, um, Dr. Doug Smith, and kind of took my mental game to a whole other level. And he just opened up a lot of possibilities. Um, the main one in particular being that there's always a higher level that you can access. And even as simple as, you know, he was saying, you're winning these tournaments, is there another level you can play at? Like physically, uh -huh. another place you can go and play. And I didn't even know, I hadn't even researched it. So at that time I researched the Ontario Tennis Association and they hold tournaments around the province. and so I started playing in those tournaments, um, you know, with, with his uh, guidance and you know, yeah. a lot of focusing on the process at that point. You know, you're not going to win every tournament, but you can do your best, right, in every, every point. So that's, cool. you know, it became a very strong mindset for me, the process-based approach, right? For you know, sure. The yeah, what uh, the world don't win every tournament, right? Right, right. What? What drove you to seeing like a sports psychologist in the first place? Uh, you know, quite honestly, I had good benefits and Doug is $200 an hour. Yeah. And, you know, it was just like, I knew he was a, you know, top notch sports psychologist. I came, I was researching it. I came across him and really honestly, at that point it came down to, I have the benefits. Mm. I'm interested in this. Like, let's give it a go. Cool. Yeah, so he really, um, really got me playing at a higher level. And, you know, when you're in a tennis tournament, you know, I won a few tournaments in the OTA. And, you know, when you're in a final and it's, you know, it's four all and you're tied and it's like whoever wins the next two games wins it all, you begin to recognize that um, your mind starts doing funny things. Yeah. It, I found it became a different you know, it was a really interesting experience to go through in kind of an environment like that where, you know, doubts start creeping in. You know, if, if I lose the first two points and I'm down 30 love in that 
in the you know second last game yeah you know your mind starts saying like it's all over like all this was for nothing you know and it's just things become more and more intense at that point so you know i work with him and basically came to the point of a real mindful approach to things and to the point where you know i got to the stage where when i was in a tennis final i could ground myself enough to put my mind somewhere else so i would listen to the birds in the trees right as opposed to before letting those thoughts kind of go um, i just found myself becoming calmer and calmer and sound became a big thing for me i would listen to the sound of the ball bouncing right and that's where i put my focus so a lot of this stuff um a lot of similarity i see through time with my mind just kind of becoming calmer and then focusing it more on a sporting approach and then just shifting my awareness around recognizing that you know you don't have to get caught up yeah in your thoughts or at least you can you can shift those thoughts to be something that's going to help rather than hinder uh -huh. yeah well, it came from a sporting approach and um it's kind of developed over time cool yeah i think i think for me in a lot of the same ways like i kind of started to encounter the concepts of mindfulness around the same time but there were the, the sports kind of came before that to to tie it together and i know we were talking about you know the it's kind of interesting I, I forget which place goes where but you know i mentioned the whole the kind of the three core skills that you can work on developing especially in the going into the new normal or people don't love that term, but you know, it's the reality that things have changed and making sure you've got that grit in place, you've got that recovery and you've got that mindset. And what was the, I think you said that now I forget the yoga was the recovery one. Yeah. And it uh, was is the grit, right? Because that is, you know, you gotta, if you're out there for hours, especially at the beginning when I first started, you know, I'd get literally lost in the forest. This was a time when um, the, your Garmin was a little thing I threw in my backpack and it gave you breadcrumbs, but they actually meant nothing because yeah. you couldn't find your way back to the parking lot with the breadcrumbs. So, you know, I built a lot of grit there. For sure. And then the mindset um, approach, you know, pretty well through everything, but I would say tennis is where the mindset approach really really took hold for me and, and became a, a strength rather than, than a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely seems, uh, it seems to be the case a lot that kind of, you know, as the example, that was your four first solo sport. And it seems like that is closely tied into developing the, the mindset in a lot of ways. If you are in the sports realm, just because, you know, with a team, there's definitely the opportunities for everybody to grow together, but it can also be the the challenge that how much responsibility do you give off to somebody else? And there's there's definitely a different style to it than when everything's just on you. Definitely, no doubt. Now, with uh, was 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 Doug also into? meditation at all or did he mention anything in the realm of meditation because that was that would be quite i mean not super early for in terms of meditation and research but that still would have been quite um quite unique i think it's become a lot more common in the last decade decade and a half with with sports performance psychologists yeah well i think um I think as with anything, like even with uh, the insight meditation retreat that I just went to that we'll get to, um, you know, Jack has been, you know, he was off traveling in India and Sri Lanka in the seventies and um, yeah. teaching, you know, in this area since the eighties. Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, if those things are, are out there. Um, I think, yeah, Doug's been doing it for a while, mindfulness based approach. Um, even when in hot yoga in the early 2000s, as I was going in with my sister in Toronto, uh, Jim McKenney was coming out from a class prior to us and he used to play for the Leafs. Oh, 
And that, that was big for me too at the time. Yeah. Like seeing, you know, here's an extra maple leaf coming out of, you know, this hot yoga class. Right? Mm -hmm. There's clearly some, there's something here. Right. So I think, yeah, I think a lot of these things, the people were around, they were just a lot harder to come by. Yeah, of course. It just wasn't as, the knowledge about it wasn't as widespread. The, the opportunities to disperse that knowledge weren't as widespread as well, unless somebody was writing a book or getting, you know, in a article of some sort in a, in a magazine or newspaper, you weren't really able to find out as much about it. Yeah, it's true. I think in today's world too, you gotta, it's almost like there's too much information, right? You have, you have too many gurus. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's about, which I've discovered, I think, over the past, well, decade in particular, but, you know, it's about finding someone that resonates with you. That you're For sure. In life, right? um, and really kind of just, you know, trying to bust through all of the information that's out there. And, you know, I think that's why you and I get along so well, right? Because, you know, that you're a flow spa, you know, you're just doing a lot of good things, right? You have a lot of good information for people. You want to help people, right? And it resonates that we met at the right time. Yep. Yep, for sure. Thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> um, now, you also mentioned in terms of, of tennis, you've got you had a few lessons with a tennis coach that you kind of wanted to mention as another interesting example that I think can lead us into the more of the, the mindfulness and meditation discussion. Yeah. Um, so I think most of my things that I pursue, uh, I do have a true passion for, you know, I don't tend to stick to things that, you know, I'm kind of lukewarm to. So those three things that I've mentioned, the hot yoga, the mountain biking, and the tennis. Like these are things that, you know, they bring me joy. Yeah. And I just see the true importance in that. So I've never really gotten too caught up in, um, you know, with mountain biking, I just took it up and then I just started doing it with friends and kind of developed in my own way. And that's the way tennis worked too. Just started playing with friends. We loved the game and we just kept playing. But because of that, um, and even though I was playing at a high level, I'd never had a tennis lesson in my entire life until I was um, 40. Okay. Yeah. And I went to the coach and I just said, I just want to get a little bit more power in my forehand. That's it. I didn't want to, you know, adjust my game. I just wanted a little bit more power because that was the one thing that I saw that, especially playing at the higher levels, um, it was a weakness in my game. Um, it was very consistent, but it just didn't have the power. So I had one lesson. I had one one hour lesson, and he taught me how to hold the racket, you know, how to twist it a little bit in my hand, how to bring it up and over, uh, just to get that little bit of extra oomph onto it. And I left that lesson, and I went to a wall, literally, for for weeks, <laughs> and uh, I just kept going back to the wall and doing exactly what he said. And I just tried to incorporate it. I had it broken down into, I think it was six steps, you know, how to step back, where to put my racket, you know, down to the six steps. And I just kept doing it until I incorporated it and it just felt natural. And then I went back to the courts and I played like that. And I, you know, you have a tendency to want to revert back to your comfort level, especially when things aren't going well. Yeah. So that's what happened, right? Is um, And then this is where the process-based approach really came into play for me. Because what was happening was, is I was playing against people. Now, this is at the, the Whippy Club level. Um, that I know I could be beating a lot more handily. But I'm actually losing to them now. Because I've got this new approach. And I'm just sticking to it because I just want to get better, right? And there was a huge desire just from a winning point of view. Like I want to win this game. Mm -hmm. And I know if I revert back to my old way, to my consistency, you know, I'll stand a better chance. But I didn't do it. I fought that, that desire and I just stuck to, 
the new technique, right? And it led me to lose some games that I probably wouldn't have lost otherwise because I was a little bit inconsistent at the time. But I just stuck to it. And eventually it just, it stuck. And I had a new forehand and it was, you know, a little bit harder, not much, but, you know, it doesn't take much. And um, that for me, it really just reinforced the process-based approach. Yeah, and he said, if everybody was like you, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> uh, yeah, how did, uh, so I guess up to that point, well, you started tennis in your teenage years then. Yeah. So who did you, you just started playing? You didn't learn from anybody? Was there like a... No, me and my friends went to the tennis courts. Uh, this was back cool. in Brampton. And we just, we literally went all day long. and just wow. the ball around. And there was yep. no lessons. It was just us loving the game and continuing to play it. Right? It's not that I haven't taken time away from the game too. And like, you know, my 20s, I took, didn't play for five years. Okay. But I always get back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Just sometimes life gets in the way of playing tennis every day. Sure. How, um, so like with this whole kind of process base and, you know, like you're, you do a lot of different things and how do you go about like learning something new, like learning a skill? Is there some sort of overarching, you know, essence to what you've approached with, whether it's learning hot yoga for the first time or kind of that development of tennis or is, is it just it comes naturally because of the, the love and enjoyment of what you're doing. Um, it comes naturally. I think I'm a yeah. big believer in finding people and talking to people, right? People that love the same thing you love and, you know, just talking to them. Yeah. So when I go to a tennis tournament, um, you know, it depends on the person. Some people are really competitive. They won't even look at you. Right? They're just sure. too competitive. It's in my book. Yeah. But, you know, most people will talk to you, right? And it's like, if they share the passion, um, you know, you can get some pretty good conversations going, right? So I'm more of a believer in talking to people and, you know, kind of finding someone like, you know, Doug, I ended up with Doug, the sports psychologist, because, um, you know, he was in his mid to late 60s at the mm -hmm. time. And he competed in a high level of golf when he was younger. Oh, okay. And, you know, it was just that shared, you know, I like to find someone that's probably further ahead on the path, let's say, in some cases, uh -huh. and really kind of learn from them, right? If not just talking to someone um, that's at the same level, but they share the same passion, right? You're just talking about the game or the sport. Um, yeah, so... I, not so much reading books and that's why you know a lot of these things that you know styles of yoga things like that you know i'm not that up to date on the different styles different styles of meditation you know i just i've kind of i've meandered my way to different approaches yeah more experiential i guess yeah no that sounds like that's your learning style and that's awesome that's great uh and sometimes you know you you told me about the the mountain bike example. Was it in Ganaraska Forest where the the guys led you through this super challenging? You know, so sometimes sometimes it will push you beyond your capabilities. But I think you're also grounded enough that it can kind of you just you just find your way and and manage to make do. And if it's too tough, then you dial it back a little bit and head home and then come back better than if you do something for the love of the sport. Like I can think of another example right now where um, in the OTA, the Ontario tennis association, those tournaments, um, I had a weekend free yeah. and the level of tournaments that I was typically playing in just weren't available. There was no tournaments that weekend. So I played at a level that was quite high. Um, <laughs> But I did it on purpose, right? And this goes cool. back to the love of the game. And it's not to say you don't walk in there saying, I'm going to lose this game. But you walk in with a love of the game and you want to challenge yourself. 
So yeah, I played against this guy and he hit the ball harder than anyone I'd ever played against. <laughs> and he was consistent. And, you know, I only, I, I say only, I only lost six, three, six, three. I was quite happy with myself after that. And, you know, even I stuck around and I watched him, the guy that just beat me, who'd hit the ball harder than anyone I'd ever played against. And I watched him play the number one seed in that level. And it honestly looked like he was playing in slow motion beside the other guy. Oh, yeah. And it's like you recognize all of these levels that are there. And you know what? You find your level and you go for it. And you don't beat yourself up. There's no need for that. You just always yeah. keep. And that's, that always comes back to that process. Stick to the process. Do your best. And you'll get to your run. That's very cool. I like that a lot. Um, and so, you know, you stuck to the process for all of this stuff. And you told me that, well, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of mindfulness baked into all of this. But you told me that you've been always wanting to attend a silent meditation retreat. And so you recently got the opportunity to do that through this, you know, rather interesting style with it being a silent retreat, but the, the group meditations were through zoom or through some sort of online platform, because of course, in this time of physical distancing, everybody's in their, their own place and, and able to come together to still do this. What was it that led you up to, or what was when you said you always wanted to do a silent retreat, why is that? Well, um, yeah, I think once you've been doing kind of mindful based stuff and seeing the power of the mind and your shifting of awareness, you know, over enough time and you're interested enough, you know, you just kind of know that these things are out there, right? So I've always seen yep, yep. silent retreats and, um, you know, heard people on podcasts talking about their experiences and, you know, it was out there and I've kind of yeah. looked them up in the past and just, it's just never worked out. Right. It's kind of hard to take an entire week and put your life aside and for sure kind of go off into a, you know, a monastery type environment and just be quiet. So, you know, with the world, the way it is now and the fact that I actually have some time now, right. And there's different ways to look at it. Right. Um, I'm trying to look at it as an opportunity, right? Not put the blinders on and kind of always look for, you know, take, make the, make the most of this time. That yeah. Right. Yep. And, you know, it was just a perfect alignment. Um, Jack, who I'd gone to for acupuncture that I knew did these things. I went to his classes, some of them, but quite honestly, at the time, um, you know, my personal practice didn't get any better. Um, although the sitting in his class, this was the physical class before the silent retreat. Um, the sitting time was longer than what I was accustomed to. We would sit for about 45 minutes to an hour, just sitting in the chair silently, right? So like I said, that was different for me. But at the same time, I was, I was intrigued enough to think, you know, I know there's more to this, you know, to see the way that Jack is, right? He's just a very calm man. And there was something, there was something there. Gotcha. The opportunity came up through the Dharma Center and I'm on his email list for his weekly meditation. Um, yeah, so he said he was doing one and it just so happened that, you know, it was last week and I could incorporate it into my life last week. You know, mm -hmm. things kind of just came together. Yeah. Really well. Almost like you couldn't plan for something like that, right? I had the interest for years, but yep. I just never yep. had the opportunity. And it presented itself last week. So, yeah, it was fortunate. Sweet. Yeah, it's funny. And it kind of goes back to that whole there's levels of things because, you know, you're a very calm man and seem very grounded. And so to say that, you know, Jack's portraying that, it just, leads me to wonder what that even looks like. <laughs> but it, you know, during the retreat, because during his, um, you know, personal sessions in his clinic, um, 
I, I didn't get a, an appreciation. Like I knew there was something, but I didn't get a real appreciation for it until the retreat week, you know, when okay, he, okay. you know, when he's leading a group of people, there's 15 or 16 of us. And, you know, just his thoughtful answers. Um, you can just tell this, he's on another level. He's done this for sure. a very long time. And yeah. that's when I discovered, you know, he was, you know, going around India and Sri Lanka and the, late seventies, early eighties, and has been teaching um, uh-huh. at, at the Dharma center since the early eighties. Right. It shows. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's a, uh, I mean, it makes it um, enticing to want to explore what that looks like now when in terms of the silent retreat. So the goal of it, you know, because it, it was self-directed in a lot of ways. So you had to, you know, kind of enforce it on your own and kind of by a code of honor and do your best to, to remain silent for the, the five days. Right. And so was there, I, I guess it would depend. Each person's going to be different. Was there a lot of preparation you had to do in order to, be as silent as possible throughout that week, like in terms. Yeah, it brings a lot of things to light that um, yeah. that you don't recognize. So, you know, that just happened to be the week before the tax deadline, and I just happened to put off the taxes until the final week before the tax deadline. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I had to schedule a call with my accountant that week. Yep. So, but what I did was I kind of I shifted everything to Wednesday afternoon or later. So I, I kept the first half, you know, Monday to Wednesday at noon. Yeah. yeah. I cleared it up completely. To, to, to be as like To the back of the week. Yeah. Yep. Just so to get at least, like, you know, that time frame. Of course. And, you know, it brings, you know, things we're interested in that we talk about, digital minimalism, right? Then you realize, oh, geez, I got to really, truly put my phone away. Was that part of it too? Um. Yeah, like it was highly recommended. Right. It was one of those things where he recognizes that you're at home and you have other, but set yourself up as best as you can to be silent for a week mm-hmm. and then go from there. So for me, that looked like pushing everything to the back of the week, all those kind of necessary things. And that I found it interesting though, because my phone was another kind of little animal that I had to deal with. So I printed out my Google Calendar. I mean, as I've been doing recently anyways. Yep. So I just take a screenshot and, you know, that at least gives me the ability to look at something and see that, you know, there are things on the calendar. And even then, it, you know, he bumped up the meditation time on Tuesday morning, I believe, from 10 a.m. until 9.30. Mm-hmm. And he did that over Zoom. And, you know, normally in the real world, somebody tells me something like that my phone's up it's in my hand it's it's changed instantly right that's it right that's the world we live in now but in that case i didn't do it and i thought in my mind oh i mean i'm gonna have to change that on my paper copy of my map or my calendar and i just didn't do it right so you know little challenges like that that you know you get out of the digital world, you get back into the paper world. You're just not quite used to operating like that. So there were a few little challenges, but for the most part, um, I cleared up my first half of the week, as you know, because we went on a bike ride and I was silent. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I think it was it the Monday morning. It was the day one, I believe. I think it was the Tuesday. Was it? Yeah. Whatever it was. I know it was, it was a fun and it was a fun and challenging day because, you know, we usually talk for the entire bike ride, but it had to be silent. So that was, I, I liked it a lot. It was, a, it was a small taste, I suppose, of, of like the releasing the, the temptation to talk. I mean, not that that's something, I mean, if people only know me through <laughs> listening to the podcast and bless your heart, but I don't spend a lot of my time else, elsewhere or otherwise you know, talking. So it's not very hard for me to imagine going a few days without talking, but it would be interesting to uh, like have to 
it opens up some interesting things, right? The things you don't realize, especially, you know, if, if you're out, like we were out on that bike ride that morning. And even though we were there very early at Haroldtown, um, we met at 6.30, we probably got there, well, before seven. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of people there at that yeah. time. Yeah. Yep. Quite a few. And even just things like not saying hi to someone. Sure. Kind of raising my hand. Um, and when I was at the bottom of the hill, I, I haven't told you this, I was at the bottom of the hill and some the guy that came down, probably the guy that passed you, he said, uh, your buddy's just coming down now. And you know, <laughs> normally I'd be like, oh, okay, thanks. And I just raised my head out of the wave, right? It's interesting. I get, it opens up, you know, and then you get a little bit, not self-conscious, but like, oh, well, I hope that guy doesn't think, you know, like, I just ignored him. <laughs> you could always pretend that you don't speak English or something if it does help to make it a little bit less awkward. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in terms of something that, so kind of in doing my research or reflecting on some of the people I know have done uh, these longer form meditation retreats in the past, like Sam Harris and uh, no relation, but Dan Harris as well. Dan Harris is the, the news anchor who's, who wrote the book 10% happier. And have you read that or heard of it? Uh, I've, I've read 10% happier. And also he was one of the podcasts uh, that I listened to that I had heard about, you know, a week-long retreat gotcha yeah so his was his was the easiest one for me to get a hold of at least in terms of seeing like the thought process behind it like sam is a meditation instructor himself and and you know a phd neuroscientist and he's deep into it so his reflections on on the meditation retreats or the silent retreats were you know, he talked about how the first time, well, the first silent retreat he went on, which also kind of makes it unfair because, you know, I think most people going on silent retreats are older. Sam Harris was 16 on his first silent retreat. And it was like several days in the woods alone with nobody else around that everybody went off on their own kind of direction in the woods for multiple days of fasting and silent retreat meditation and he talked about how the first i think like the first day or the first two days you know it was complete misery and all he did was journal about the different foods he was going to eat when he was able to eat again and back home and and you know appreciating the fact he was so young that makes sense and and it sounds like misery but also dan harris is more of well he was a news anchor I don't know if he still is, but um, is he still a news anchor? But he's also got, he's got his own, the 10% Happier Meditation app, and he's doing a lot in the world of meditation. But he's definitely more of the sort of extroverted type, I would say, that struggles inherently because he's forced to keep his mouth shut and not interact with all the people around him. And it was it was the most detailed account I'd say, because he goes through each day and what he experienced throughout this whole retreat in 10% happier. And so what was the, and, and I guess kind of the point I'm getting to was also, you know, you said phone had to be off, but in those traditional retreats, that's also the only things you're supposed to do are meditate. You're not, so, you're not allowed to like read it's, it's either like, you know, waking meditation, walking and kind of the, the stuff we do in between, but there's no, no reading allowed, no talking allowed. And so what other sort of, um, limitations or suggested restrictions were there with this retreat? Um, I think most of them came before that, you know, set yourself up as yeah. best you can in your life yep. Yep. for, um, you know, a meditating three times a day there was 10 o'clock 3 30 and 7 30 and each mm -hmm. one lasted about two hours oh wow and yeah so you know part of that was jack talking um which was very good very very good and you know like i said about an, at least an hour of that 
each of those sessions was meditation. So at least three hours per day of meditating. Sure. And, you know, over the weekends up 13 hours, at least, at least that we did. Um, beyond that, you know, when you left, yeah, you were supposed to kind of go about your day. Um, think about the teachings that Jack had taught earlier that day. Yeah. You know, and he, he kept saying, depending on your level. So he said some of the more advanced people in this course, um, they'll start meditating before they get back on the meditation call. Mm -hmm. um, I did that a little bit, but mine typically, I would get into the room about 10 minutes before and just get myself back into that state. Um, the first two and a half days, you know, I took it really easy. We went on our bike ride, but um, that was about it. I just yeah, kind of, yeah. I just kind of just was, I just was being, right? And that's a big shift, right? You're so used to doing in today's world. Yeah. Um, it's a big shift, even though it was only two and a half days, right? And you're trying to quiet your thoughts, especially on Wednesday morning, when I realized, you know, I had the accountant call and things like that. That was a big day for me because I realized it started, the brain, the thoughts started ramping up again. Right. I have to do this. I have to be on my son's call for his homework um, like today. Right. So I, I kind of like the approach being at home. Yep, It'd be yep, interesting yep. to see, you know, going off somewhere where you're, you're away from your life. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of value for, for living your life because it brings a lot of things to light. For sure. You know, you do a lot of doing. Now, in terms of you, you made a great point there in, and I also recognize it as something that Joseph Goldstein, who ran the, the meditation retreat that Dan Harris was on down at Spirit Rock, talks about and recognizes in terms of when you're coming towards that end point of the, of whether it is a longer form retreat or a meditation. And the reason that this stands out to me is I'm thinking in terms of also in the float tank. And, you know, the whole purpose is it is an environment that is conducive to bringing you into this present moment and into a meditative state, even if you don't have a lot of the skills there because you've got no external distractions. But the inner workings of the mind sometimes don't slow down. Was there, how, how well did you do with that? Or was there anything that was kind of helped you mitigate some of those kind of like rumblings that were kind of growing in your mind or, or what kind of advice can you give in that realm? Yeah. Well, I would say that, you know, doing the, doing the retreat, I mean, there's, he called them the five factors. So on the first factor, um, it's just that you just, you put your, you put your attention on an object, right? So I pretty well, you know, in hindsight, that's basically the factor that I lived in coming up to the, uh, to this retreat, you know, where you have the ability to sit and you might have a teacher with you and they guide you and say, you know, let your thoughts go, or maybe you're focusing on an object like a candle flame or something. Um, for me, a lot of that was external. So I said about, you know, playing in the tennis tournaments and hearing the sounds, hearing the birds and the trees and the finals Yeah. yeah. Um, on a mountain bike, shifting my awareness around my body. You know, I got a lot of comfort with all that, you know, be, having the ability to do that. And it really helped me in this retreat. But what I found was is, so that's part one is putting your attention on an object, which I had no problem with. I'm used to that. Is that kind of like the candle flame style in terms of meditation? In this class, it's your breath. Strictly okay. your breath, right? Mm -hmm. So inhale one, exhale one, two, two. And every time you have a thought come in, and this is the very beginning, right? This is the early in the week. When you have a thought come in, um, go back to your breath, right? Use your awareness as a gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, your awareness is there and it says, as soon as it recognizes that thought, just go away. You don't have a ticket to get here. Go away. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I felt comfortable with that. I had enough experience with my personal meditation practice leading up to it. 
Yep. Where, you know, I feel my awareness was there. Now, having the ability to sustain the attention, right? And this is where it gets into the longer meditations, right? So I've had the ability to sustain my attention, but not to this extent, right? Hmm. Even on day one, meditating for three hours on day one, what I have fallen into, or historically have, and I think it's maybe for most people today, is, is you kind of wait until you're anxious or you have a problem, and then you go and meditate. Hmm. And you might do it for 15 minutes, calm yourself down, and then you feel like, oh, I got a lot to do, and then you go on with your day, right? This was different in that, you know, the time frame, you're, you're there for an hour, right? Then you go away for a couple hours, you're back on, you're there for another hour. Then you go away and you're back for another hour, right? So I found the ability to sustain my attention, or at least I had the ability, but I just never followed through typically in my life. So my kind of meditation always was kind of in and out. Right? I feel stressed, I'm going to calm myself down. And I really developed a good ability for that over the years. Mm-hmm. But it was more external. Right? I'd be listening to sounds. I wasn't going inside. Right? So this is what I really, really learned this week or that week was to sit, to bring my attention to my breath and keep bringing it back right? for a longer period of time. And then not on day one, day one was just kind of learning A, the time, the longer time, and B, going back. Day two, he started taking your focus, your concentration, and bringing it down to a finer and finer point. So he said that, you know, focus on your abdomen going in and out, in and out. And then he said, focus on a loony sized area on your abdomen. Right? And then he brought that down to nickel, and then a dime, and then a walnut, and then a sesame seed. Right? And this is where the true power, and this is where everything shifted for me. I was no longer going outside. I was going inside my body. And this is day two, right? And you're just really learning to focus it and build the power of your concentration, mm-hmm. which I recognize in hindsight that I wasn't doing prior to this retreat. Um, and it really builds up a, a focus, a concentration. It really builds up an awareness yeah. of what's going on inside your body. And I had something happen to me. Um, I think it was on the second day. And so when you're sitting for that long, sometimes you get a little tired. And he, he introduced later on Tuesday some... Um, qigong, you know, just some light qigong movements prior to the meditation to get the energy moving, right? There's very specific techniques in that, but a lot of bringing your energy up to the top of your head and then bringing it down again and just kind of circulating this energy. So I really started to feel, you know, actually feel this energy moving through my body and it could actually like bring me back again. You know, when you start to get a little bit tired, your focus isn't quite there, you know, you start doing this qigong and it comes back and i got to the point where i was recognizing things come up in my body emotions and thoughts um thought patterns that would just come up and at one point i got a little bit tired and it's almost like it was a dream and i had i had a thought or a dream that invoked anxiety in me and my heart it was tight and it was, you know, beating anxiously. And, you know, we're two days in now. I'd, I'd worked up enough of uh, an awareness at this point mm-hmm. to, I didn't have to worry about letting that thought go because, you know, immediately you think, like, why do I have anxiety? And then you try to attach onto that thought that came. But because it was very dreamlike, it was already gone. So now I'm just yeah. sitting with anxiety in my body. And because we had worked on this focus, the next thought was, I'm anxious. And I was able to, because of the state I was in, I was able to get rid of that thought, just move it away. And then I just sat 
with the anxiety in my body, right? And I just literally um, put my focus, which he was teaching us how to bring it down to a finer, finer point, and I was doing it to my abdomen up until that point. And I just focused on the anxiety. Wow. Yeah, and I sat with it. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that he said in theory leading up to this point, you know, I was living it now. I'm sitting with it. And I wasn't thinking about sitting with it. I was just, this is all me talking in hindsight. In that moment, I was just in my body and I was feeling this anxiety. And I was just watching it. And there was no judgment. And it just went away. It just dissipated with time. Right? Um, when I came out of the meditation afterwards, that is a moment for me that, you know, I'll never forget. Because... I think that's at the heart of, you know, all these things that you hear, um, you hear people talk about, you know, um, we're all suffering, right? To get into the Buddhist terminology and you just have to be able to sit with it. Um, for me, it was a little taste. It was like, wow, I just literally sat with it and I was just with it and there was no judgment. There was no story. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you recognize that you create you know, your thoughts create like a narrative and then you'll go off on your narrative because you're anxious and you're whatever you're anxious about. And that wasn't there. It was just the anxiety. And I feel it was very therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a good moment. And that was only Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, only Tuesday, but unlike, I mean, just kind of going off of what I know from Dan Harris, I don't, I can't recall because I just to, I didn't reread the whole book, but he didn't do a whole lot of meditation practice prior to his retreat. And, you know, this was as he sort of started investigating meditation. So I don't think it was quite as much as, you know, say the, the 20 years of mindset training that you've been doing. So that that's definitely some profound changes. I think, uh, I guess the, you know, the, the kind of question is, did you have expectations around any kind of changes or was it more that you were just excited to try this because it was something that you'd always looked forward to trying? Yeah. I, I think those thoughts do come in the expectations. Um, I think it goes, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, trade your expectation for appreciation. So I had to think that a few times leading up to it because I didn't want to set any expectations. You know, I didn't want to have an experience like that. I just wanted to, to just sit yeah. and, and just be right. Yeah. And I kept going back to that. And it, it's a genuine thing. I just, I just want to sit. Like I know it's a thing and I know that a lot of people do it. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of gurus back, we're going back thousands of years. You just know it's a thing. But I did realize that I, you know, I was dabbling on the edges. Right. And I just, yeah, I wanted to go deeper. I would say that was probably, um, probably a general expectation, but sure. nothing specific. Okay. I think that's a good way to go into it. Yeah. Now you also said, you know, you felt that this was a very transformational experience for you and it, is it for those reasons that we've already talked about? Was there anything else that stood out to you about this? Well, yeah. So that, you know, it's the five, uh, the five steps to, to get into your body, um, the five factors, right? So it's that sitting, focusing, um, the concentration, bringing yourself into your body. And then, there's two more to go. And what these are is once you bring yourself into your body, you, you have that point of awareness and that focus. What you do at that point is you, um, you release, you let go into your body. So you let go of that point of focus. And uh, Jack was using the term breath body. So just let go into your breath body. And you know, that's a technique, mm -hmm. right? And that, that's an advanced technique for sure. Um, and I think just because of the buildup for me with the awareness and the, the mindset, 
um, I had some good experiences there. And what that is supposed to do is when you when you release is you basically bring your awareness to your entire body. And there's there's two things there. You're looking for deep contentment and for bliss. Right? So bliss is a pretty big word. That's something you know, <laughs> I can't say I reached bliss, but I would say I reached a very deep contentment when I released that concentration point and just sat in my body. Mm -hmm. um, and there was one time where he said one thing, he said, um, you know, concentrate on your skin. And I was sitting in my body feeling this, it's, it's deep contentment. It's a great, great word for it. And because of that term breath body, I literally felt that I was only my skin. So, and there was nothing different between the outside of my body and the inside of my body. Yeah. So when I had that feeling, I literally, even though I was sitting in a chair, I felt like I was floating in space. Right. Um, Have you ever had that before in meditation? No. Okay. Not even close. Yeah. Um, so that kind of went from the, I feel like I at least got a little snapshot of that, you know, the bliss that they talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it kind of went from a deep contentment to uh, something different, something a little bit more profound than um, just sitting in your body, right? And then it went away. But I think once you get these these little glimpses, um, as Jack said, there's a momentum to mindfulness. And, you know, I would agree with that because over the week, it definitely, my practice built. And I've continued since. Like I have not had a day of um, meditating under 30 minutes is my minimum since. Mm -hmm. But, you know, an hour, um, typically, over the past Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and today, right? So my practice, you know, I'm only four days away from the, from the retreat. But at the same time, I've had enough of a glimpse yeah. that I definitely want to incorporate a daily practice because I feel that, you know, my approach, what I've developed over time is I use this stuff and I can drop into it pretty quickly um, in a tennis tournament when I'm mountain biking. These things come naturally to me now because I've done them so much. But what I, what I want to develop now is the ability to kind of um, always kind of be in that state as much as possible. Not just drop into it because I know I can when I'm stressed. To kind of cultivate a daily practice. Yeah. 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 But you know, there's there's challenges there, right? Because it's that it's that being versus doing. And you know, I think I struggle with that. I think everybody struggles with that in today's world, right? You got bings and dings and things coming at you in all directions, and I have two kids, and you know, it's just the world is set up to kind of you know, come at you. But I think what you also have to realize is like, you know, there's a door of awareness that if you're aware enough and you see these pressures and you see the patterns of your life, and, um, you know, all those things that are recurring patterns. I think there's a lot of value in, in being able to sit with yourself and, uh, you know, take your practice to a new level, which is what I've done. Right? It feels good. That's awesome. That's really great. Yeah, that kind of, is there anything, one of my questions that you just answered, but is there anything else that you would want to carry away from this retreat with you that carry on into the new Tony? Yeah, well, I would say that, you know, all of the actions that you take, um, You'll love this because it ties a little bit into stoicism, right? With all of the actions that you take should be attached underneath underneath that action. You should have a deeper virtue, right? Or intention attached to that action. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what I would want to kind of strip away from my life is when you sit long enough and you become very aware of your patterns and your your thought constructs and things like that, 
um, to become aware of possibly some of my recurring actions that, that aren't moving me forward, right? So, you know, even something as simple as, you know, going for that bowl of ice cream at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Um, you know, a lot of times you just, you just kind of do it mindlessly, right? Yeah. So it's an action you're taking. Um, but what's the underlying virtue? Like, what is there good to it? And I think, I think I'm very close to being able to, you know, look at an action and say, should I do it or not? Okay, is, does this go to my values? But in order to do that, you know, you gotta, you gotta slow yourself down. You gotta be, you gotta be in control. You can't have the world controlling you, right? And it's becoming more and more important. Yeah. You yeah. More dings and dings coming at you. For sure. Yeah, you gotta, one of my, one of my sort of favorites in the realm of recovery is you got to go slow to go fast in, in terms of recovery and in terms of flow states too, because there's a recovery stage to, to flow. You can't always be in that heightened optimal state all the time. Yeah, definitely. And it's, um, it's becoming more and more important. I would have to say for sure. Now in terms of, you've mentioned it a couple of times and I want to get your thoughts on this. I haven't sort of presented this idea to you yet because it's sort of my, the one that I'm working with around this whole retreat idea and thoughts. But so just as I read, um, read some of these accounts of, of meditation retreats from Sam Harris and Dan Harris is one in particular with his retreat. And I forget what, oh, actually, you know what it is. It's the concept of a silent retreat being a way to strip away all the distractions from what is called the wound of existence. And so I think I've got a lot more research to do to be able to fully explain that. But I think it resonates with most people that, that, just that term, the wound of existence. But my thought here is that, and what I want to get your thoughts on, do you think that a digital detox can in any way be like a, a lesser version of a silent retreat if somebody's not quite ready to go that to that extent in terms of stripping away some of those distractions? Yeah, well, what I would say is, um, you know, we all have a psychological landscape. And in addition to the psychological landscape, we have the world at large. And all of this digital distraction is, you know, it's becoming more and more of a serious issue. You're frozen up, but can you still see me there? Yep. Okay. Yeah, the the digital world is, I see it personally as very similar to the psychological, you know, subterranean landscape that comes at you. Mm. you know, whether or not it's your own personal um, issues coming up and getting caught in your head, or whether it's your digital world and all of this stuff that's coming at you from the outside. Um, yeah, you, you need to detox from both of these things. So the psychological landscape, um, this is a detox, right? Yeah. abilities and this awareness is a detox because you're not letting them in anymore, right? You're calming yourself down, right? You're using techniques. Um, a digital detox is the same thing. Um, you're doing the exact same thing. You're stopping this barrage that, um, that's becoming more and more. For sure, for sure. Right? And you can't put these things away. And, you know, if you have to get an answer right away and you have to look at your, you know, you have to go to Google to get the answer. Um, even with my little digital detox of, you know, two and a half days, really the whole week, but I had to be on it a little bit for the yeah, remainder. Yeah. Um, there is a beauty that you can see that you can't see otherwise because, you know, you can't, you can't pay attention to yourself or, get into a good enough state if you don't have the time for it. And 
you know, these digital devices, they don't allow the time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's great. Um, I think, is there anything else that you, uh, you want to talk about? That was, I, that was, that was really great. There's so much to think about and process in terms of what you said. That was really jam packed full of wisdom. And I hope people listen to that a couple of times because even if they don't have the chance or opportunity to attend their own silent retreat, I think even just, and there's definitely the benefits of having somebody like Jack that's leading the way and guiding you through those lessons and learning so that you can handle it and, and kind of go even deeper, but hopefully people will make the opportunity to somehow cultivate some sort of, whether it's a digital detox or a mini silent retreat of their own, just from kind of, I don't know, out of self-exploration to understand yourself better. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of good resources in the area. Um, you know, your flow spot included with meditation classes. I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, don't get too far off the path, right? Try to always stay mindful, be very aware of, you know, there's a lot of other factors trying to get, trying to get your attention out there, right? Mm -hmm. This is my path, right? It's, everybody's path is unique, but you know, if you feel like you're in the ballpark, um, like look at just what happened to me last week, it's, you know, my, I, I would say my practice was effective for my life. Right. You know, in not putting on the blinders and saying, you know, this is my practice. This is it. You know, kind of always look, look for something else. And uh, if you find the right thing, it'll resonate. You'll know it's right. Cool. That's great. Um, so I think, I think we'll wrap up there. I'll definitely have to have you back on as we kind of, I, I do want to talk more about your, your journey into becoming a, a massage therapist and everything, but I want to save that for another time perhaps and have give it like, you know, its own structure and time frame. Thank you for listening to the Flowcast. Take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube for the video version and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to connect the podcast to those who will find value in it. Hit the share button and send this episode to a friend or two. And a big thanks as always to Flow Spa for making it possible for us to keep making this podcast. Flow Spa is Peterborough's float therapy and sports recovery center dedicated to providing the ultimate relaxation experience. Whether you need physical relief from pain or a deep state of mental relaxation and calm, or even the best sports recovery methods to help you recover from your training, Flow Spa is where you can find your flow.